Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. How are you, Mr Hammond? I am very well, thank you. I must say I'm currently in Italy, which is always a great pleasure. So personally doing well, but of course we have, the, the world continues to deliver quite a lot of potential anxieties or some doozies. Oh my word. We literally just think that we've got um, got the pandemic sort of starting to fade away ah. into a, maybe a state of permanence or normality or something. And then, um, and then, boy, we get hit with, uh, well, I suppose first really all that sort of cost of cost of living shooting up. And then just on top of that, the poor Ukrainians and the, uh, the war there. And all, it just seems to be giving us an overall, the water level, of our stress seems to be just generally high. If you'll pardon the expression, I know you've been suffering from water levels physically yourself, but it just seems that it's it's high even before anything else happens to us. It is. It's a bit of a doozathon. This one. <laughs> this is it, it. It's going on a long time, it really and so is. it really does make you think. Okay, we we've got to look after ourselves here because this could wear you down. Yeah. One thing exactly. after the other type feeling. And you've got to you've got to get sharper knowing like, okay, what are the areas that I need to work on? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and how ha- and and how do I get that information? Which actually leads quite nicely into this week's guest, I do believe. What a lovely segue. Oh, thank you so much. Almost didn't have to do any work myself. So um <laughs> the uh yes, our guest is gonna be absolutely fantastic, I think, for helping us and as members of teams to help those teams to really look after ourselves in these tough times and any other t- any other tough times we come across or even everyday life. So we're going to be talking to Simon Shepherd. He's the CEO of Optima Life and he spends his life looking at people's physiology and getting some good data to back that up. So let's go over and hear him now. Simon, welcome to We Not Me. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Simon, before we hear a little bit about you, as you know, we torture our guests with a, with the card exercise. So I have three packs of cards here just to get to know you a little bit. A red one, tricky questions. Orange one, not bad. Green one, slightly more easy. So from which pack would you like a card? Let's get the hard stuff out of the way first. Let's go red. <laughs> you think? Okay, here's your question. One thing that really annoys me is... <laughs> my favourite question, that one. The, the, this is the pinnacle question, I think. I love it. I've told we've only got half an hour on this as well. Actually, I'll tell you what really annoys me, and it's been really annoying me recently, is people who drive in the middle lane of a motorway and don't pull in. Honestly, I, I must have got to a certain age in my life because I find myself at using language that is very juvenile and ranting like, and raving. get over... Get over to the other yes, lane. Yes, that- something like that. Some, yes. It reminds me of that old joke about the day that the dad has to drive the kids into school and the mum says, oh, how was it? Oh, it was great, mummy. We didn't see any tossers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like that. So uh, good. I think we can all share that exact exasperation, Simon, definitely. So thank you for that little insight. But why don't we go a little bit deeper? Tell us about you, Simon. What do you What are you doing now and how did you get here? Well, I'll rewind the clock. I'm a physiotherapist by background. I spent the last three decades overseas with player health, well-being and performance as sports science at Lord's Cricket Ground. So I guess that's my foundation stone in my in the working world. And then for the last 15 years, I've been uh, wiring people up with monitors for a whole host of different backgrounds, 
and trying to understand their physiology and mapping it against their behaviours and their actions and their thoughts and their feelings and using that as a, a basis for coaching both individuals and teams on what I call the human and humane side of performance. So I've had the pleasure of this experience, as has Dan. We will pray tell a little bit more later. So just for the benefit of our listeners, just tell us a bit of the science about what it's actually measuring so and what it actually even looks like and what you do with it. Look and feel. So we, we put a little <laughs> monitor on your chest, first of all. So it's a bit, it's very small. It's like going to say a 50 pence piece or a, it's about that big. Okay. Yep. Top right to bottom left. It fits a bit like a defibrillator, but obviously much smaller and doesn't do quite what a defibrillator does. And what that measures, it looks at movement, it looks at your heart rate. But the thing that I got very excited about is it looks at something called heart rate variability. So it's probably sensible if I, if I just give a little 30 second physiology lesson on why that's useful. And, and then we can talk potentially about some of the data. So heart rate variability is a product of our autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system controls all the things we don't think about, like our breathing and our sweating and our digestion and our blood pressure. And there are two main branches. There's a, a sympathetic branch that's activated when we're stressed or we're alert or we're loaded or we're excited. And, and during those times, we tend to release adrenaline and potentially cortisol and our blood pressure rises. But our heart will start to beat like a metronome. So you can have a heart rate of 60, but it would literally be one beat every second with great monotony. And then the, the other branch is called the parasympathetic branch. That'll kick in when we're trying to recover and relax. And we start to release our hormones that help our body and, and restore and refresh it. And um, what happens there is we could still have a heart rate of 60, but our heart would be quickly for five or 10 seconds, then slowly for five or 10. Quickly for five or 10, then slowly. So identical heart rates, but two totally different patterns. And by understanding those subtle changes, we can make inferences of whether the body, how the body is responding to certain situations of life. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal a little bit. I had it on for 40, I think it was 48 hours. I think it was. And so the report I got back had green and red in it. Tell us what the green is and tell us what the red is. So the monitor collects all these numbers and we chuck the numbers into a computer and it produces this report. And on the report that you're referring to, we, the, the red colour will indicate when a person's in the state of sympathetic dominance, minimal heart rate variability, potentially releasing adrenaline and, and, and cortisol. And the green colour will indicate when you're in the parasympathetic status and there's a third color there which is blue so we'll also look at physical load or exercise sometimes deliberate sometimes informal like commuting to work but we'll have physical load non-physical load and then how you're recovering we piece that together and over a 24-hour period we can almost make some uh, reference to how well your batteries have recharged after the demands of a, a busy day which is fascinating so i got two great insights one was I don't seem to, when I did it, this is quite a few years ago, and I had, my children were much younger, wasn't getting a lot of recovery in the weekend. So you're running down your batteries and then you were racing around after a young family. So you didn't get that recovery, except for a cheeky hour on a Saturday afternoon, which was actually when I had a little snooze and everything just, I got a power nap. And that was really interesting to see the impact that actually had on, on the next few days. So that actually was really valuable. And then the second one was alcohol. So one night with 
one night without. And the impact on my quality of sleep was unbelievable. I thought that was so interesting. So it wasn't positive, but it wasn't a lot, but it had an impact on that quality. Why is that? What happens there, Simon? Well, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying. Many people get quite surprised at the impact of alcohol because for many people, alcohol sends you to sleep and you think that's quite good to be asleep. But the quality of the sleep is really poor. And the reason for that is alcohol is a toxic substance. And I should also put my hands up straight away and say I drink. So this isn't saying never drink again, folks. I'm quite selective when I do and how much. But um, so we've got this toxic substance in our body that we need to process and that is work. And typically we will see about an hour's worth of quality sleep will be lost for every unit of alcohol taken on board. That, like everything in life, there'll always be some outliers to this, but it, it's quite an interesting thing for people to see. And, and really good of you, Peter, to run the experiment for yourself. Sacrifice yourself for one, I was going to say, by having alcohol, but maybe the sacrifice was by not having alcohol. But it, uh, it was a good learning experience. I had the same, and I, I actually I can visualise it now because you debriefed me, Simon, on it. And I was having a nice night's sleep, and then I had this red bar, and and you said, and did you drink that evening? I said yes, and he said that's it. There, it's almost like the red wine and the red bar, sort of, and, and I, I sort of went together from oversimplified, but I still see that in my mind's eye. So yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. So Simon, d- dive a little bit into your work now. So what does this look like when you're working with people? You you probably work with a broad range of people. What does that actually look like and uh, what what are they getting out of it? So I guess I, I have a, a basic philosophy that I call mainframe. So M for measure and analyze, and that will come through the data and the understanding. I for inspire, because data is actually pretty useless unless you use it or help people understand themselves or make some change or reinforcement in their life. And then I guess the key is the N, which is for nurture. How do you actually make this conversation last a little bit longer. So it isn't a here today and gone tomorrow. So what I typically do is I will work with groups of people. You know, I do work with individuals, but I think my sweet spot in the area I really enjoy is working with groups of people and teams and one, help them understand themselves at an individual level a little bit better. And two, help them understand each other and therefore maybe put in place some support for each other and open up those conversations that allow you to be a really closely knit team. And thirdly, particularly in the leadership sector, encourage the leaders to think, how do I become a multiplier for this across my organization? Because you will learn as an individual, but actually, isn't it great if you then teach a few other people or mentor a few other people or open up those conversations with a few other people? Because if your people are functioning well, your job becomes a lot easier. The the question I really want to ask, Simon, is this, thinking about teams, people the joy of teams and the challenge of teams is that people, the individuals impact upon each other. What have you seen about the body's response of an individual being in that team? How individuals affect each other? What is, what actually happens in those little groups that we call teams? Well, I think it's a really good question. Of course, lots of different things can happen to lots of different people and lots of different situations. And I think it's having that understanding that we're very adaptive and the world's very adaptive around us. But just to give you, you know, a few examples, I remember working with, with a group and I was coaching the chairman of a, it was a big property company. And we went in, we looked at his data and he was, it was a working day. And in the morning he had green, really all the morning. And of course he wasn't napping in the middle of the morning and that sort of thing. And I'd be saying, you know, what was going on there? 
and because he just put meeting in his diary and, and these diary markers said on the report, he just put meeting, so it meant nothing. He said, actually, I was preparing for a pitch and then we went and did the pitch and it was really good and it was really enjoyed it. I love that stuff. And I always listen out for the adjectives and the adverbs when people describe what's going on in their day because as I just said, meeting means nothing but exciting or really effective. Those are the words that give it away. And then the afternoon, there was this really high bar of red and uh, he just looked at his diary and he went, oh, yes, I remember that. He said, none of my team had done any preparation whatsoever for a meeting. It was the biggest waste of time. I was just so frustrated with it all. So you had this big pitch for a massive piece of work in the city of London on property where actually this person was totally in the sweet spot in that green area. And then the internal meeting, and maybe actually this will resonate with a few people, external meetings. We have to do a lot of prep for internal meetings. Do we give our colleagues the respect they deserve by doing the prep, by engaging with things as well as we could do? Certainly in that case, it hadn't happened. So... In teams working together, how does this information support them to either be more efficient or build the dynamic of the team? What are you seeing there? Well, I think once you've done the individual feedback, you then get the team back into a group and you actually encourage them to tell their stories. You know, what what really allowed you to fly and what really got underneath your skin? And then we can help the group understand that there might be differences in behaviours and, and cultures that allow people to flourish or potentially put a bit of a roadblock in the way. And the more teams can understand themselves around that, then hopefully you become acceptant and you allow people to play to their strengths as opposed to people playing to one person's strength, which is often the leaders. I think that would be really valuable. I would imagine too, I mean, do you have individuals that actually get stressed by the team environment? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I... Often when I go and work with a company and they, you know, we're talking about things at the setup, one of the things I do warn them is that I would suggest that once every month, someone will decide to leave their job on the back of the data. Wow. And probably once every six months, someone will seriously consider their relationship status away from work. Do you get much hate mail? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? I don't. And actually, because I think this is a real win-win, because if the person Mm. doesn't want to be there, and you can help them, you almost give them permission to make that decision, yeah. it's a win for the individual. And if you've got people who want to be within the team or want to be within the organisation, that's got to be a win for the organisation. Zooming out a bit, Simon, you must have a big old data set there about how things, you know, well, about the world of work, I guess, primarily, but about life in general. What, what light can you shed for us on, on how we sort of, our mortal coil, how we, <laughs> how, we, how we live and work in today's world. I was really chuckling when Pia was telling us about her data and um, she said that a weekend things were quite tough because we actually looked at the first 10,000 days of data we collected in UK PLC. I think one of the interesting observations was toughest day of the week was Saturday, closely followed by Sunday. So we always think that work is the baddie in this work-life balance discussion relationship but actually work can sometimes be the the anchor stone could be really important to people and and life away from work is tough for many people and there is this emotional multiplier that sits in life at home that might not be present in life at work so so if i have someone 
and they talk about, I feel really overwhelmed at the moment, and they almost can't see the wood from the trees. One of the things I, I get them to do is do a, what I call a mini stress audit. And I just get them to write down everything in the last week that's got under their skin or is worrying them. And then I just ask them to score it out of three. How big a worry was this, where three is a really massive pain in the butt and one is a, a, a trivial irritation. And then we do another column and I just say, what's the emotional impact of that? And then if you multiply those two numbers together, it often allows you to really see what is the main problem. So to give you an example, I was working with an A&E consultant just leading up to Christmas 2020, pretty lively time in the pandemic over here. And um, he said, I just feel really overwhelmed. He did the exercise and it was just clear working the Christmas shift had scored three. There was a one for, it was a minor irritation, but I've done it before. Two, yes, I've got to break the news to the family and they're not going to be happy. But then we saw this nine, a three and a three. And that three was, my father's fallen over, has been admitted to hospital and he lives a long way away. So this was an unusual problem, which had a significant emotional impact. And that's the thing that needed to be sorted out or needs to get their head around quickly. I was also um, reminded of our conversation last week with Martin Bromley talking about critical teams when you mentioned the NE consultant and how in times of emergency, we tend to actually do exactly the opposite of what that emergency calls for. We get fixated on the problem. There are a number of things that happen. What's the connection between what you're seeing, the parasympathetic response and that working of the mind? Is, is there a connection there that you've seen? I think if you have ownership of a problem, you tend to be in a better place. If you don't have ownership or you're reliant on lots of other bits of a, a jigsaw and those bits could be moving parts, then actually we see some people in a really tough place. And I'm honest that a lot of people who work in the NHS over the last couple of years, I think experience is also a really interesting thing here. So same people in the same environment, but if you're experienced you're probably going to be in a better place than if you're not. So monitoring junior doctors, they were really struggling. Monitoring the consultants, hey, it was tough, and I'm not pretending it wasn't. But they tended to be in a better place. And potentially they had more anchors away from work as well that just neutralised things a little bit. Another example would be, we, we did some work a few years ago with an ambulance service, and we had some monitors on people on the front line. And then we had some monitors on people who were taking the calls in the call centres. And of course, people think that the most stressed are going to be the, the people defibrillating or, or cutting people out of cars, etc. And that was actually totally incorrect. The, the much higher levels of stress were seen in the call centres who lost ownership of a situation, might have taken a very stressful call, but then lost ownership of that. And then we're almost forgotten about. And is that then having a direct impact on how people are interacting with that workflow? I mean, how, how do you adjust the stress levels for that person given that situation? Because I think we've all come from a generation which is stiff upper lip and just keep going, but then we just keel over really at the end of the day. So this is really insightful. And certainly I, I would say that the results that I had were fundamentally changed some of the practices that I make in my own life and some of the things that I intuitively knew helped me it ratified it through the data. So what happens if your work is stressful or elements are? How do, how do teams adjust to that? 
I think there's some short-term adjustments and there's some what I'm going to call slightly longer-term adjustments. So just think of a short-term adjustment. I call it this concept of reset. And I, I, I often use the analogy of a Formula One car. Every 15 laps or so, it pulls into the pits. It stops. It gets some new tyres. It might have something done to the chassis, but it stops. And the reason it stops is because it wants to win the race. What do human beings do? So we just keep on going and keep on going until often the race beats us. And I think one of the things I like to encourage teams to do is think, how do you create those moments of reset? And, we, you know, nutritional, which is going having a bite to eat at lunch and there's physical getting up and moving around. But how do you create that intellectual and that emotional moment of reset during your working day? So going back to the junior doctors, one of the things that we introduced, which was really simple when you think about it, was when you left a cubicle, you had to count to 10. You had to take three deep breaths before you went to the next cubicle. And that's all you did. But it almost became the count to 10 mantra. And you've got people shouting across departments, count to 10, count to 10, and supporting their colleagues to create that moment of just reset. I've got to clear my mind from the last case. I've got to remember who I am. I've got to remember what I've got to do. And I go through my process, my clinical and medical processes again, when I walk into the next cubicle. And that's quite simple. Really simple. Simple practice, but c- could be life-saving in some respect. And for both parties. Again, you talk to, your, yeah. to my medical colleagues and sometimes they say, do you know what, if I actually think too hard about what I do, I'll be terrified. But they have to have some sort of processing because if they don't think at all, they are going to become dangerous to their patients. So that gives a very sh- simple example of a short-term strategy. And then longer term, I think it's encouraging people about the coping mechanisms that are going to allow them to recharge their batteries, which effectively is good sleep and good quality sleep. And when you do have that moment at the weekend, if you've had a really tough week and you've got a really tough week next week, is that the moment to go out and party and drink two thirds of a bottle of wine, which isn't much, but what's that? Four or five units? That's going to take out four or five Mm. hours of quality sleep. You're going to see a bar on your chart, I can tell you that, even with less than that. <laughs> Another one affecting sleep that was interesting for me was devices. But actually, it was this was a big device. So one night was a chat with my partner, and the second night was watching a video. And the green of the conversation was phenomenal. Luckily, we weren't arguing, so it was actually, it was, it was, it was all going really well. But what was interesting, just, and this is watching, this is quite a long some time ago, watching TV. It, it had a phenomenal impact because that, and I wasn't even close to it. And I actually even think, gosh, I spend a lot of time in front of a laptop. What impact does that actually have on my sleep? I, I think there are two sides to this. So we could get some physiological and go that if the blue light's coming out and even with a blue light filter, there'll be some blue light that comes out of the device. That causes the release of dopamine. And dopamine's a hormone that makes us feel alert. So not the best sort of thing to do just before you, know, you, you go to sleep. But for me, the bigger issue is the content of what comes out of the device. So if you switch on to the news or you just decide to check in on some work emails two minutes before you go to sleep, that's going to almost definitely trigger this thing. And so again, it's another thing that I often talk to people about is how do you switch your brain off? Most people are quite good at switching their bodies off when they go to bed, their head hits the pillow. A lot of people fall asleep pretty quickly, but this thing's still ticking away in the background. But, uh, and we need to get better 
are switching our brains off, not just our bodies. So if I go through a really busy period of my life, I have a blank book. I, about 45 minutes before I go to bed, I draw a line down the middle of the page. On the left-hand side, I just jot down what I've done today. I normally feel a little bit better about life. On the right-hand side, I'll write down what needs to be done tomorrow. I look at the book. I slowly close it. Five deep breaths. It's almost a bit of a ritual. This is me switching my brain off. And, and I tell people that, and they often say, well, I'm really good. I've got pen and paper by the side of my bed. So when I wake up at four, I can write things down. And I'm not, and I go, that's really good. And I said, wouldn't it be better to write them down before you go to sleep rather than at four in the morning? <laughs> and I guess it's that proactive against reactive, you know, attitude to life. And hopefully that first method is a little bit more proactive. That is definitely one for one of our listeners that I know very well. That'll be a top tip. Say no more. Um, uh, Simon, that's, that's incredibly pragmatic and it's really making, certainly making me think about uh, my switch off procedures. And obviously I've never ch- checked a work email um, in the middle of the night. But I, I was just on that subject though. The work comes in, but I, I, it's, this is a little bit of a question around my middle, mid lane cruiser, actually. One of the, my pet peeves in the past has been how organizations have talked about resilience, which to me, I've always seen that, and you can hear it in the messaging, rather about how can you keep going past the pit lane, basically. What's the, but I can definitely see some change in that now. I think people, organizations are becoming better at this, but could you talk a little bit about resilience and the meaning of that and how, how we can foster that for ourselves? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the dictionary describes resilience as the ability to deal with difficulties quickly or challenges quickly. I think where companies sometimes got it wrong in the past was they thought that robustness equaled resilience. And for me, it doesn't. So robustness is this concept of continue going and going. And people might recognize this, I'll do it, not a problem, leave it there. And and just their in-tray gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And I often say, if that's you, or you know someone who's like that, and you just start to see the slightest little cracks in their behavior or, or you know, their, their performance. Encourage them to do something. Because when the robust person breaks, they often break big. And that break could be in their health or it could be in their performance or it could be a critical mistake. And then that influences the rest of the team as well. So I think we have a responsibility to look after both ourselves and our colleagues and watch out for that robust trait because it, it can be not great. And what, what I wanted to conclude on here was that some of the data that I got, I intuitively knew, and it helped to reinforce, and others was a huge wake-up call. So I had no idea, really, the impact that alcohol had. And I have to say, I have stopped drinking. So that obviously wasn't, it took a long time for that, that feedback to, to fit in, but I've stopped drinking for a year now and I've had very different sleep over a year as a result of it. So that's quite interesting. But other elements, you really needed, yeah, you need the data to help to see things. So what's your advice to team leaders and team members out there who, you know, some may get access to this, but some may not. So what can we learn from the data? What, What insights can we give them? to help team members in really a pretty stressed environment that we all work in. I always think you're quite fortunate if you're able to, to get monitored and you understand yourself so you get a bit better and get the coaching around it. But of course, the physicists, not everyone will be able to do it. So I think the key is see if you can have the confidence to 
use the data to tell your story to your people. And all of a sudden, you humanize yourself. And one of the things that I often do, I, I do quite a lot of keynotes, and the last two years has been a bit tough to do face-to-face keynotes, but whenever I do a keynote to a company, one of the things I love doing is wiring up someone senior, ideally the CEO or the chairman, within the company beforehand, and then getting them up on stage in front of everyone else and coaching them live around their data. And the impact is so, so powerful because all of a sudden the audience over there realize that this person is a human being and has one or two challenges. And this person doesn't have to pretend to be some superhuman that nothing ever impacts at all. The secret's out. I have one or two challenges in my life too. And it's just brilliant afterwards. You see this sort of joining together and almost stuffy. Oh, thank you for doing that. So I think as a leader, if you, if you do have data like this, yeah, great for you, but could be really great for your people if it allows you to tell story and humanize yourself. And I think that's a really good general tip that everyone can take away, bringing that human into the workplace. Simon, it's been, well, an incredibly condensed and insightful session that we've had with you today. I think people will take away a great deal. And if they wish to get wired up, get the full treatment, they can find all your details in the show notes. So I hope somewhat people will reach out to you because this is a, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do and life-changing potentially. So thank you for your great work and thank you for a wonderful interview today, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, you and I, Dan, spent a lot of time travelling and we loved it. And it's slightly intoxicating, but it's also exhausting. So it's, you know, over a long period of time of 20 years, that's going to have quite an impact. And, and what was really interesting about doing the heart rate variability exercise was I really understood how important sleep was and actually had compromised it for many years in order to push through you know, with jet lag, in order to be at home, in order to compensate for being away, in order to, you know, support clients in the evening, doing all that stuff. It was really interesting. I'd just taken it for granted. And then the other thing, and I, you know, I know there's always a degree of censorship on these podcasts, but then let's mention the menopause, then enters into your life at a certain age, which really screws up your sleep. And you can end up in a bit of a heap. So it was really valuable to know what made it worse and what things could I start to take some control of, you know, and looking at screens before you go to sleep or drinking a couple of glasses of wine to help you go to sleep was suddenly, you know, data inputs that were not useful. And that was actually quite revolutionary. And I've, I've treasured sleep like water as being like a fundamental of keeping you on, on the straight and narrow and looking after yourself. We underestimate it, don't we? And I know I was talking to um, Rob Metcalf recently, our guest on the first show of, uh, of We Not Me, and he was saying that in his coaching now, that's his foundational question is about sleep. And you realise that you know, the science backs that up. And you're right, Peter, we we would just sort of push on. And I think I think Simon's distinction between resilience and robustness is really helpful. I think I think that for me, I felt like for a start, that I was robust. I could just push on and I can do this. But actually all I was doing was being robust, trying to be robust. And in reality, we can't go on. I think the quality of thinking that's required now is immense. We have to look after ourselves in order to look after our teammates and also to understand this crazy system that we're in. This really really requires us to be on our game. And the pit stop analogy that simon gave was perfect never took a pit stop at all and i think i think our listener will 
also have something to some things to think about even without having to strap anything to themselves to sort of get their heart rate uh, variability to to think about are they having those pit stops and, and are they having the sleep they need and it's not a sign of your technical wizardry or talent and i think that's what we attribute it to that ability to push on and be strong is an attribute of leadership and actually being able to sort of stop take a breather take the bigger picture and do the right thinking is probably a better attribute but but we have to monitor that we have to make those choices yeah and there is a narrative isn't there about the grind i can see a, a sort of reaction to it now on LinkedIn, which i think is healthy that's on people being very funny about it actually i got up at 6 a.m this morning and went straight back to sleep <laughs> yeah exactly that sort of thing but you know the grind it's it's a dangerous narrative for us to tell ourselves because we need to be smarter than that so simon has the data to prove that which is which is great so i would wholly recommend anyone listening to this to give it a try because it's going to be your personal data and it was life-changing for me because of the information that it gave and so insightful that it could really help you to adjust and be in for the long game. And that's what we've all got to be in for, the long game, not the short sprint. And there are a lot of consumer devices now, not as accurate as what Simon uses, but we can get a little read on this for ourselves through a lot of devices that are already available. So really exciting to see. And a real, I think it's exciting because I think we're moving into a new, a new realm where <clears throat> not the grind, but actually those pit stops and actually being truly resilient being able to restore ourselves is something that will be respected so yeah really exciting times ahead we hope um so Pia, what on the subject of exciting times what do we have in our next week's show yeah next week's show we're talking to david burns who's the ceo of collective leisure and it's this beautiful nexus of community diversity and teamwork and he's done some amazing work in that realm of uh, you know how, how, do, how do we maximize the community's talents and how do we bring diverse cultures together to be able to do that so I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation with him it's certainly well really looking forward to it but that's it for this episode you can find show notes and resources at squadify.net just click on the we not leave podcast link if you've enjoyed the show please share the love and recommend it to your friends also please do give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform we not me is produced by mark steadman of origin thank you so much for listening it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 